Chapter 10 of The Mute Singer by Anna Cora Mollett Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 10 The Old Musician. Day followed day, week fled after week. But Sylvie still lay withering under the torrid heat of fever, hourly becoming weaker, and giving no sign of consciousness, though her burning lips ceaselessly moved in soundless mutterings. One might almost imagine that it was a gratification to Madame de la Roche to be visited by positive affliction. The certainty of an actual evil seemed more endurable than the vague dread of some menacing calamity. Then her sad auguries had proved prophetic. That was a cause for self-complacency, and no one could contradict her when she maintained that adversity dogged their steps. That was a decided satisfaction. She was comparatively cheerful under the real, tangible trial. Though in the midst of flattering prospects she had been causelessly depressed, and ever watchful for possible misfortunes which loomed up darkly in the distant horizon. Her husband had refused, as long as he could, to believe that Sylvie's illness was serious, but, as week after week slowly wore away, even his hopeful vision failed to trace the slightest improvement in her condition. He became silent and gloomy, and almost forsook his home as though he could fly from its troubles by not witnessing them. Maitre Bourgeau's character, in which growing tenderness for Sylvie had long since commenced a gradual, harmonizing change, was now completely softened by sorrow. Her confiding affection, her appreciating devotion had penetrated through the hardness, roughness, bitterness of his external husk into the inner, better nature that lay buried like a sweet kernel within a tough and prickly rind. Her soft hand had struck deep chords deep in his soul, which never before gave forth a sound, and, but for her wakening touch, might have remained mute as death even until death. He had never loved any human being as he loved this patient, clinging, steady-hearted girl. He looked down upon her with paternal protection, and looked up to her with reverence that recognized her higher, purer mold. His attachment for her touched the secret spring of his long-closed heart, and opened its doors to the rest of mankind. He hated others less, because he loved her better every day. He was more kindly disposed towards all the world, because the holy mantle of her broad charity swept about his feet. Grief, now mingled with love, melted him to such wondrous gentleness that even Matthieu dared to approach him with anxious inquiries concerning the now silent songstress who made all the music of the poor cripple's untuned existence. Bourgeot was moved by his desolate look and despairing tone, and compelled himself to answer so cheerfully that the heavy shadows upon the boy's countenance grew lighter as he listened, 
and the old man learned for the first time that there was comfort in comforting. Sylvie's sudden disappearance from the scene of her triumphs had not proved as detrimental to her tutor's prosperity as might reasonably have been expected. He was now a regular member of Monsieur Legrand's corps, frequently appearing before critical audiences, and as his musical talent, cultivation, and skill grew more and more apparent, steadily winning laurels. All that he had heretofore lacked had been a fair field upon which he could prove his claims to public favor, and he struggled through half a century without ever planting his foot on that desired ground, the Canaan of the musician. Alas, how many of the noteless gifted toil through long lives, uncrowned and unknown, simply because the opportunity to test their powers is never accorded. Perhaps, after all, it was as needful that the musician's hairs should whiten before his fingers caught the wizard touch that played at once upon the heart-strings and upon those of his instrument, as that violin should require years to gain that exquisite mellowness of tone which it now possessed. For the old violin is endowed with a potent sweetness which age can only confer and which therefore never belongs to the new. The autocrat of the breakfast table tells us that there are 58 different pieces in a violin, and those pieces are strangers to each other, and it takes a century, more or less, to make them thoroughly acquainted. At last they learn to vibrate in harmony, and the instrument becomes an organic whole, as it were, a great capsule which had grown from a garden bed in Cremona or elsewhere. Besides, the wood is juicy and full of sap for fifty years or so, but at the end of fifty or a hundred more gets tolerably dry and comparatively resonant. Let us not then quarrel with time, which gives melody not to the violin only, but to every human instrument when its construction is fine and susceptible of that gradual progress towards perfection which God orders, and only jarring nature rebels against. Sylvie had been ill for a month, when one morning Ursule, who was sitting beside her, chanced to look up from her work, and found the invalid gazing at her with totally changed expression. Her eyes, though strangely sunken and far too large for her face, were clear and calm and sane. The wild lights had faded out of them. The fiery spot that had glowed upon her cheeks until it seemed to have burnt the hollows now visible was quenched in ashy whiteness. Her lips were lightly closed, no longer compressed as they had been of late, when not moving speechlessly, the small, transparent hands were lying placidly on the coverlet. Her eyes wandered from her soul's face over the bed covering, then around the room, as though they were searching for something just laid down. With returning consciousness, her mind had gone back to the last thing thought by which it was occupied when reason forsook her, and her gaze rested finally on the little Bible. Ursule, without permitting herself to betray the least surprise, handed the volume, opening it at the place 
where the pressed flower lay between the leaves. She was rewarded by a smile, the first she had beheld for many weeks. The next moment Sylvie, laying her hand upon the open page, moved her lips. Then an expression of sudden anguish passed over her face. With a violent effort she whispered, "'My voice! My voice! Have I lost my voice?' Ursul could not command her own to reply. A shuddering spasm convulsed the young girl's frame as she wildly tried to force the sounds which died unuttered in her throat. Ursul quickly regained her self-possession and said, I am thankful to see you better, my dear. You have been so very ill. How long? murmured Sylvie indistinctly. More than a month. After a moment of amazement, Sylvia appeared to be trying to collect her thoughts. She asked, speaking very slowly, but in the same choked tone, Have I lost my voice forever? Heaven forbid, replied her soul cheeringly. Now that you have passed the crisis, we may dare to believe that it will be restored. Blessed are the words of hope, even when hope is faint groundless, unreal. Still the words that can inspire hope, however fallacious, are full of consolation, full of vitality. Ursul's words not only soothed Sylvie, but imparted new strength to her feeble frame, new courage to her sinking spirit. Madame de la Roche, who was in her own apartment, having caught the sound of Ursul's voice, now entered, when she saw Sylvie looking perfectly rational, with a passionate burst, she threw herself on her knees beside the bed, exclaiming, My child, my own, my only one, are you indeed spared? Are you better? Do you know your poor, broken-hearted mother? Sylvie's answering caresses replied for her. Speak to me, speak to me, cried Madame de la Roche, embracing her fondly. Sylvie only sighed. You cannot. Your voice, your beautiful voice is gone then. Ah, oh, will it never return? If it be God's will, whispered Sylvie, and her white face grew angelic with the look which said that she could wait for what that will to be made apparent. Wait and hope. Wait, if needs be, without hope. Dr. Suvestra and Maitre Bougeot now entered. The instant Sylvie caught sight of the latter, she feebly stretched her arms toward him, but they dropped powerless upon the bed. Ursul divined her intention, and as the musician bent over her joyfully, lifted up the weak, nerveless arms, and they clasped himself about his neck. His face was buried in the bed covering, and his frame shook as though he were weeping. If tears of joy could not find their way to eyes, the channels of which half a century had dried, the freshening drops fell inwardly and revived his parched spirit. The hand of Dr. Sylvestre upon his shoulder roused him, and he rose, exclaiming, I'm an old fool, I know it, but it is this little witch who has worried me into my dotage. But now we will have no more nonsense. She will get well, will she not, doctor? The young physician, who, as usual, 
endeavored to make up for his lack of years by a great assumption of dignity, did not think fit to too hastily endorse this unprofessional opinion. With a solemn and stately air, he merely desired Maitre Beaujol, who was nearest to the patient, to have the goodness to stand aside. Seating himself by Sylvie's bed, the youthful Escopulus placed his fingers deliberately on her pulse and said, "'Do you know me, Mademoiselle Sylvie?' She shook her head in the negative. "'Do you remember seeing me when you were taken ill?' Still a negative motion of the head. "'Do you find yourself unable to speak?' She answered by a slight, involuntary compression of her quivering lips and a gentle bow. The doctor, after extending his examination to a period which Maitre Bourgeot thought needlessly protracted, turned to the trio, who were impatiently waiting for his decision, and, with a self-satisfied and somewhat pompous intonation, said, I am happy to pronounce my patient out of danger, and to give you hope of her steady convalescence. But her voice! "'What is her health without her voice?' ejaculated the mother, who, as soon as the sun began to shine, hunted after the clouds with which she had such natural affinity. "'What a wicked look Bourgeot gave her! "'She must not attempt to force her voice in any way,' replied the doctor. "'Let her write whatever she wishes to communicate.' "'But what is to become of her unless you can restore her voice and she can sing again?' "'Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof, madam. "'It will be some time enough by and by to test what medical science can effect "'towards the restoration of her vocal cords, which are now partially paralyzed. "'I congratulate myself that she is progressing very favorably at present.' My orders are that she is to be kept very quiet and not allowed to make the least attempt to speak. He turned towards Ursule as he uttered these last words, intimating that he regarded her as the responsible person, and, gravely bowing, withdrew. Bougeot again seated himself by Sylvie's side, she placed her hand in his and whispered, "'What disappointment for you!' "'Little rebel, are you not forbidden to speak? "'Do not let me see you open your lips again. "'If you will be very quiet, "'I will tell you all that has happened since you were taken ill.' Sylvie looked as though she would have said, "'That is just what I most desire.' Her master went on, my disappointment has indeed been great but not so great as my sorrow at beholding you suffer and though i am a thankless old brute by nature i have had much to make me grateful in spite of your illness monsieur legrand continues my engagement sylvie's eyes sparkled ah i knew you would rejoice therefore i told you that first i am prospering gaining ground with the public making friends and obtaining scholars i do not owe all this to the magical voice that melodiously spoke the open sesame 
that thrust the old man into the arena battle for its prizes do i not owe it to that studious little pupil who first drew attention to her obscure master and though she only flashed like a meteor across the musical firmament and disappeared did she not leave a trail of light that ever points to him sylvie clasped her hands and no voice was needed to speak her joy but do not suppose the lost pleiad is forgotten there are numberless eyes always looking to see it again and numberless voices constantly accosting me to know if there are signs of its reappearance sylvie's eyes plainly inquired who asked for me you would like to know who why everyone monsieur lagrand asks after you every time he sees me and the vocalist who envied you and are glad you are out of their way make most tender inquiries after your health always hoping to receive the satisfactory answer that you are no better you look incredulous nevertheless it is the truth then mademoiselle belchasse who is filling your place as you once filled hers and who is terribly afraid you will not die makes more particular and affectionate inquiries than anyone else and i always take care to tell her that you will startle the world again before long besides these you have many genuine admirers who ask after you sylvie could not help whispering who will you be silent and obey orders imagine yourself dumb or can't you do anything so unnatural to womankind maitre bourgeau tried to laugh at his own joke but signally failed you want to know who inquires uh, there is the count castellane for one the duc de blanc for another and mademoiselle de saint amar never tires of asking after you and talking about you a faint rose hue suffused sylvie's face and she sighed softly and her brother monsieur le marquis has several times sought me to know if you are improving i hear he is a passionate lover of music and i made up my mind long since that he is a fine critic now i must leave you for a while as i have several lessons to give but did i tell you who has become one of my pupils i am solely indebted to the sensation you created for that one and probably she expects me to make her as great a singer as you are though her voice compares with yours precisely as a very tiny sweet-toned pipe compares with a superb church organ who is it whispered sylvie disobeying again then i really think it is time to leave you besides it is past the hour for mademoiselle honorine's lesson sylvie's eyes opened wide with astonishment and she drew a long breath i have just commenced teaching the little elf she has a capital ear and fine taste 
but her voice is as small as her fairy-like self. A good-sized cricket would drown it by chirping. Shall I give her a message from you? Sylvie made an effort to speak. Don't! Don't! What an idiot I was to tempt you! I will invent something that you will do quite as well. Now, adieu! I will see you again before night. Sylvie would have lifted his hand to her lips, but she had not the strength. Without noticing the action, he departed. After her master left, she made no further attempt to speak. Ursule brought her some light nourishment. She reluctantly swallowed a few mouthfuls, and then lay back with closed eyes. Her mother thought she was slumbering, but she was only musing over the past and counting the blessings granted her in spite of this crushing blow. When she thought of her master and the bright future opened to him through her humble instrumentality, the sense of gratitude overpowered all other emotions, and she thanked God that she had been able to sing even those three nights and felt that the loss of her voice was not too great a price to pay for her beloved teacher's prosperity. Twilight was casting long shadows when Bourgeot returned. The curtain that divided off Sylvie's room from the general chamber was thrown back that she might have free air. She knew his step and opened her eyes when he entered and watched him without venturing to utter a word. He laid his violin on the bed, then unfolded a small parcel and took out a porcelain slate with a tiny silver pencil attached to it by silken cord. There, this pencil, said he, is to be the jailer of your tongue. You are to write whatever you wish to communicate, but recollect that you are to keep the unruly member in prison until the doctor sets it at liberty. Now, let us see what comes next. He took her wasted hand in his and gently slid upon her finger the ruby ring. An irrepressible exclamation of surprise and joy broke from her lips. Take care, not a word. We are to have no talking and no writing either just now, he added. As Sylvie grasped the pencil which her trembling fingers could not have guided. You can have nothing to say. There is your ring and here is my violin. The two truants both returned. We are quits. Comment is superfluous. You shall only listen while the old violin and its master tell you of their joy in the language which you comprehend best. Beaujou opened the case and took out the venerable instrument, and, as with masterly hand, he woke its witching voice, now to strains of exultation, now of the tenderest pathos, now of holy thanksgiving, Sylvie listened as one enchanted. But, though her eyes seemed fastened on the musician's time-scarred visage, it was not that face she saw. Another countenance, conjured up by the penetrating sounds which drew forth the image deepest in her soul, rose up between and shut out the less captivating reality. How long he would have played, how long she would have listened, it is not easy to divine. The candle had been lighted for some time, the night was advancing, 
but neither Sylvie nor her master had commenced to grow weary when their enjoyment met with the jarring interruption of Monsieur de la Roche's entrance. Maître Bougeot rose and hastily closing Sylvie's curtain, passed out to meet the father, and after telling him of the cheering change in her state, earnestly charged him not to excite his daughter and to beware how he induced her to speak. Bougeau was strongly inclined to remain during the interview between parrot and child, but doubtful of his own ability to control his temper, he contented himself with giving a significant glance at Ursule and left the room. His admonitions were wasted on Monsieur de la Roche. The quicksilver of his mental thermometer suddenly mounted to a fever heat, and at his daughter's sides, his ecstasy found vent in all manner of fantastic extravagances until Ursule, with the authority of an established nurse, interfered and finally expelled him from the apartment, threatening not to open the door to him again that night if he did not moderate his joyful demonstrations. End of chapter 10